You are now listening to the Minority Trailblazer Podcast. Season 2, new intro, let the story begin. One time for the lovers, two times for the ladies, three times for the brothers, four times for the babies. Do you love her? 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 One time for the lovers, two times for the ladies, three times for the brothers, four times for the babies. Do you love her? 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 Brown skin, love a brown skin, love a brown. Brown skin, love a brown skin, love a brown. She my brown skin, love a brown skin, love a brown. She my brown skin, love a brown skin. Hold me down. Yeah. I get so pumped up when I hear that intro, man. How y'all doing? It's your boy Greg E. Hill, the Culture Change Agent, and I am the host of the Minority Trailblazer Podcast. I'm excited to bring you in another groundbreaking interview with an expert at what she does, a PhD nonetheless, the first doctor we got on the show, and it won't be the last. And before I even get into her bio, I just want to say a couple things. First, I want to say thank you all who have purchased my book, Remember You're a Genius Again, One Man's Journey from Hero to homeless, to humble. I appreciate the support. If you want more information, go to greggyhill.com backslash book. Appreciate y'all. Second, if you are interested in attending the Minority Trailblazer podcast and want more information, make sure you send me an email at greg at greggyhill.com. I'll make sure I get you on the early list and get you a special discount for acquiring early. And third, if you're listening via iPhones and Vice, make sure you subscribe. You rate the podcast and you share it with a few friends. And I know y'all Android people or people that are not listening via iPhone, make sure you subscribe to the SoundCloud. Or you can find us on Google Play, Minority Trailblazer Podcast. So let's get enough about that. This episode, I have the unique opportunity to interview Dr. Tiffany Jones. She's the program director for the Higher Educational Research and Policy at the Southern Education Foundation, which is an organization that was founded just barely after slavery. I mean, it's been in existence over a century, and they do amazing things as far as in the higher education and K through 12 with our minority students and Latino serving institutions, and they're doing a lot of great work and i mean she's come from central michigan university that's where she got her bachelor's degree got a master's degree in higher education from university of maryland at college park and she had received her doctorate from the university of southern california so if you are in the education space if you are in the policy space if you are in the space of want to make sure our hbcus stay relevant stay operating and stay functioning at the high capacity they are functioning at then this is an episode for you and I challenge you not to get lost in the academic jargon because there's going to be a lot of back and forth with that because she's a doctor. She's amazing at her craft. She knows what she's talking about. So I just challenge you to look through it from a, a lens of understanding from the whole concept of education as its own entity. And I guarantee you're going to get a lot of great things from the show because she's a rare breed. There's not too many minorities in higher education in general, specifically female minorities in higher education and she's going to come from a lens and from a, a perspective which a lot of you if you i don't care what 
profession, what age group you're in can relate to. And I'm just excited to have her on the show. So, so without further ado, I would like to introduce Dr. Tiffany Jones to the Minority Trailblazer podcast. Welcome to the show. Thank you. Thank you for having me. Oh, no, I'm excited. I know we're going to drop a, not a, a lot of knowledge on the show because, honestly, you are the first ever doctor to come on the Minority Trailblazer podcast, an expert in your field. So I'm excited for what, for what I'm going to learn from you. Oh, great. Great. I'm excited <laughs> for the conversation. <laughs> so this customary, like all our podcasts, we always start the podcast off with a quote because I'm a big, big quote guy. I mean, I wake up at 4.30, sometimes 3.30 every single morning, and I send quotes to 160 people every single day. They've been doing it for the last couple of years. So we love our guests to come and share their favorite quote and a story about how they apply that quote in their everyday life. So please, Dr. Jones, take us away. Okay, great. Um, so one of my favorite quotes um, is actually from the Bible. Um, it's, you know, do not become weary in, in doing good for you'll reap a harvest at the proper time if you don't give up. And that's in Galatians. And what I really like about that quote, and I remember meditating on that when I was in graduate school in particular, working, hustling, as I'm, I'm sure others can relate when you're going to school and you're working and you kind of can get overwhelmed, burnt out, and you kind of feel like, what is this all for? And it just always really encouraged me. Um, you know, I might not see the fruit right now, but I just have to stay with it and remember like why I'm working on what I'm working on and be excited about um, what's to come and the contributions I'll be able to make uh, for the communities um, that I care about, that I come from. And so although in the, in the short term it can be painful, uh, definitely staying focused on that long term. And now that I'm on the other side, um, done with graduate school, um, it definitely was well worth it. And actually seeing some of the fruit of that labor has been really, really great. Mm, that's, that's powerful. And if you could, I got to ask, can you take us to a story? A story where it was like, take us to that moment when something happened. You just, okay, this is, I got to remember what the long-term goal is. So if you could share with us a story through your experience that, that really encapsulates that. Yeah. Um, well, actually, even I can share just right at the, the beginning of my process of, for, for graduate school, I actually, um, due to, you know, financial challenges, um, I, I almost quit before I started and, um, was, you know, going through a lot. I had just moved to the DC area, which, you know, was much more expensive than what I was used to. <laughs> you and, <already> know. <laughs> yes. Yes. So coming from the Midwest, uh, yeah. So there was that. Um, and so, yeah, just financial challenges. I was a first-generation college student, and I kind of felt like I have a college degree. I, the right thing to do might be to go home, work full-time, take care of myself, and, you know, I'll, I'll get to graduate school when I can. And I remember going to meet with my advisor, who was also a Black woman, who, you know, was a professor. And we had, were meeting for the first time. And I was sharing with her, you know, these things and I began to cry, got emotional. Um, and she didn't know me. This was our first meeting, but oh, what wow. she told me. You but, cried yeah. in the first meeting? Right. Because I was <laughs> letting her know, you know, thank you for the opportunity, but I don't think this is going to work. I think I have to go back home. Mm -hmm. um, and she let me know, you know, no, you're not. Uh, <laughs> you're going to stay here. She shared that she was also a first generation college student and just, you know, 
she would be there to help me along the way that, um, you know, reminded me, you know, why did you apply in the first place? And we talked about it and what the long-term goal was and why I was doing it. And she, you know, is still my mentor today. And even though I didn't even stay there for my PhD, she was still, you know, a great resource and source of support. Um, but she not only gave me, you know, wisdom in terms of content, teaching me in courses, but also just how to do this work in a meaningful, impactful way. Um, and her name's Sharon Friesbrit. She's an amazing, she's a full professor at the University of Maryland College Park, and, and she's an award-winning mentor. Um, and I, so I felt privileged mm -hmm. uh, to, that I walked into her office because there may have been others who said, okay, here's the paperwork, you know, nice knowing you. But because I walked into her office and she reminded me, you know, why we were in this fight, why it was important to stay the course, um, because there's not a lot of uh, women like us in these spaces, um, and of the importance of helping one another. Um, and so it was just really, really impactful for me. Oh, man, that's that's powerful. And I mean, you lucked up into a mental. Some of us are still out here on the fences finding that. So that's that's right. definitely powerful. So before before getting your master's degree, your doctorate degree, even before undergrad, could you introduce yourself, like who you are and where you come from, to our audience? Sure. So I um, I'm Tiffany Jones. I grew up in a uh, Lansing, Michigan. Lansing, um, Michigan. Yes, yes. And so um, I got into this space really early on. Um, in high school, I remember getting involved in what we would have debates that they would film for the public access channel to try and sway voters around different educational legislation. Um, and I didn't understand everything at the time, but I did know from being an athlete and having the opportunity to visit other schools, I always had the question in the back of my head, why why does our school like look like this? And mm -hmm. why does their school look like that? Why does our locker room look like this? Why does theirs look like that? And so very early on, um, it was always in my head. And I just always wondered, is it because of money? Is it be these, these are white schools? I go to black school. You know, what does this all mean? So although I had a wonderful, supportive, great K-12 experience, I also, you know, had questions. I was in honors classes, which were great, but they off, they were not black like my school. You know, why am I the only black person in this honors class doesn't make any sense? So these are things as early as elementary that were in my head that I really wrestled with and wondered about um, what was going on in our educational system um, in the way of inequity. So I had the opportunity when I was in high school to learn more. And so we you know, debated on things like vouchers and whether a bond proposal to get funding for the school. And I um, couldn't believe that, you know, who would vote against giving our school funding? We mm -hmm. need the funding. But it got me engaged in educational policy really early. And we had a superintendent at the time, um, Sharon E. Banks, who was a black woman. She had a, a doctorate and she was head of the the um, school district. And so in some ways she was like a role model. And so early on, although, you know, I was first generation college student, I started thinking like, this is the pathway I'm going to get um, a, a doctorate and get a PhD. And this is what I'm going to do. I'm going to come and support districts like the one I came from to make sure they students get what they need. Um, and then I got into college, into higher ed, and I realized, oh my goodness, you know, there's so <laughs> many, so many issues in higher ed. Yeah. 
And so not that there are not issues in K-12, but I think folks are generally pretty well aware that there are issues in K-12 and there's a lot of folks working on those issues. But in higher ed, there's just so many assumptions that you just go and then Mm -hmm. it works out. And then if you're smart and diligent, you'll get done and it'll be great. And if you're not, then it was probably because you partied too much. Um, And as a student was there on an academic scholarship and really struggled and wanted to uh, drop out um, because I didn't feel integrated into the campus culture. I went to a predominantly white campus, Mm -hmm. um, had a lot of challenges around race and racism. Institution didn't really handle them well. And so, again, it was very discouraging. And what struck me was as a honor student, nobody prepared me for this. No one talked to me. No one warned me. I just walked into it and was blindsided, had no skills to navigate at all. Mm -hmm. And so I thought if students like me who are here with, you know, financial support and resources are still contemplating leaving, what does that mean for everybody else? And does this explain why there's so few, you know, students of color at my institution or and so that actually got me on the, the higher education track, getting involved in campus activism around issues of race and racism. Um, and I said, this is the space I, I want to work in to help transform opportunities for my community. Um, and so that's where I've kind of been ever since. Wow, that's, a, that's, that's powerful, especially being a, a first generation college student and then already having the foresight say i want to get a phd i want to work in this educational space so like how how were you raised so that that came out so early because i mean you had no i mean of course you said the superintendent was an african-american female with their doctorate but growing up were there a lot of bench benchmarks or people that you were role models around you they were doing stuff like that or how that even come into play Yeah, that's a good question. So Lansing is um, adjacent to East Lansing. And so East Lansing is where Michigan State University is. And so I did have exposure to folks who were in college, getting college degrees um, all the time, whether it be at church or after school programs, folks were working with us. They were all Michigan State University students. So the idea that there's this place called college that people go to Mm -hmm. wasn't too far off. But in terms of personally, I mean, Uh, My mother was extremely hard worker. I got my work ethic from her. She worked two jobs, um, always grinding and encouraged us. You know, she wanted, she worked um, for the car industry and she always told us she was an administrative assistant that she wanted us to have an administrative assistant. She didn't want us to be one. And so she, for her, that meant go and be an engineer. I wasn't all that interested (laughs) in being an engineer, but I, you know, appreciate the sentiment. You can't lose with that though. Exactly, exactly. And of course, you just wanted us to be successful. Uh, My father very much, I think if he would have grown up in a different time, could have been an academic and very successful as a college professor, um, because his interests were are in history and reading and always, you know, watching the news and documentaries. And so I grew up, you know, some of the first books I read as a child were autobiographies of famous black folks and just different books that he had around the house. And he was always reading or watching things that were um, historical or informative and kind of that, I guess, the research bug or the academic bug, you know, from him. Mm -hmm. Um, But again, just grew up in a different time. um, And so he ended up going to the military and not to to college. And, you know, black men at that time just didn't have those kind of opportunities. Um, And so... For me, yeah, I had definitely got things from my parents in terms of other people who, you know, were doing stuff in the education space. I had someone at my church um, who was a professor, a black woman um, at Michigan State in educational psychology, and she was my, like, Bible school teacher. And so, <laughs> uh-huh. uh, 
So I think even subconsciously, just knowing her and knowing what she did, I think influenced me as well. Um, among others, again, because of the, the, the college being there. So we, me and my mom went to African dance with my godmom. Um, the teacher's name is Dr. Jones, and she she's also an academic. You know, she's Goodness gracious. Woman. So God just puts a lot of people in your life. Like that's crazy that you just exactly. <laughs> that's 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 phenomenal. And um, exactly, we're gonna definitely get into SEF and your organization mm-hmm. in a, in a second. But I do want to stay stay along the veins of uh, because it's definitely I want to hear your perspective on your journey in higher education as a African-American female, because mm-hmm. um, I know the space is hard enough for, for anybody in general, black males in general, the ones I've talked to, but I haven't really heard from a, a female's perspective being in the Ivory Tower, like your whole, that whole process. So if you can kind of share from, from your perspective, I know that's probably a couple hour conversation, but, right. <laughs> but some, some, some quick points to kind of, for, so our listeners can kind of get inside your head through some of the challenges or maybe some of the good things from, from your background that you have been able to kind of adapt into, to help in your journey in academia thus far. Well, yeah, I'll say, so when I think about, you know, black women, women of color in academia, the first thing I think about is, workload self-care issues, right? Um, I've seen it across the board in all different kinds of spaces as it relates to where you can do this work, whether it be organizations, on a college campus, as an administrator, as a faculty member. It's a challenge. And I think, um, you know, I'm still learning it myself. Mm -hmm. But I think maybe some of our... uh, tendencies come from wanting to overcompensate because we're often in spaces where there are not folks like us. Mm-hmm. Um, there's all sorts of research that, you know, talks about how, you know, even just things like students rating their professors, they rate black women more harshly, like mm-hmm. every, at every single step, right. Um, as it relates to job performance, it's not that you're not performing, but just perceptions around your performance. What's, which then influences um, how you approach your work and Mm -hmm. whether or not you have a healthy work-life balance or um, your confidence among other, you know, factors around, you know, self-care. And so that's a major theme. So whenever I'm even speaking with a lot of other black women um, in academia or in higher ed, um, these are the things we talk about strategies for overcoming these things um, and how to take care of ourselves, how to take care of each other. Um, because again, it's, um, you know, perceptions around whether or not we're confident, um, our leadership ability, um, being perceived, um, you know, is just not being as competent are, our issues, especially, you know, even when it comes to age, um, as well, of course, just as women as you know, being perceived, especially if you're in a leadership position, right, being able to be assertive um, mm-hmm. without being seen as being aggressive and all of these delicate balances um, make it very difficult. Um, and so for me, I guess a theme would be like work-life balance, self-care, um, confidence, and even um, just making sure that we're not overrun by people's perceptions of us and just focus on, you know, the work that is needed to, to be done, um, are all challenges that I know all groups face, but I think black women in particular, um, it can be compounded because of issues around race and gender, um, that can make it difficult, especially as you advance in your career. 
Yeah, and I think I'm not a female, but I can say that that's probably sentiments for for those even way outside that field in in mm-hmm. management, in school, in the classroom, in a lot of different areas. And because you get it from so many different fronts, like even like I say, I've had an African American female manager and I mean just uh, sometimes innately I would be like well I, she don't know what she's talking about or my tone might change in meetings and I know I wouldn't take the same tone and get mm-hmm. somebody else I had to check myself and I know and I'm a black male so imagine mm-hmm. having to lead some, some your peer group or those that are other you uh, uh, over you even of your own same color like I mean mm-hmm. and then and then take outside of that somebody that's not your color and it's just there's so many different things that are coming at you. So I can only I can only um, I can only imagine that. So um, and I know I just want to touch on your your, your journey because I know you have a lot of stories to share. But what was your mm-hmm. top three takeaways through your your through your academic journey as far as undergrad, master's and Ph.D.? And I know it's like, yo, that's that's a lot of years you're talking about, bro. Right. <laughs> you're talking about three takeaways. But what like. Just, I just want to kind of get into your head, like some of the nuggets that you took out through your whole time in academia, which has been a long time. Yes. Well, I will say the first, you know, it's probably not um, academic language, but mm. I'll say keep it real. Um, and so remembering why I got into this space and actually now that I've been here over time, if I could go back and tell my earlier self when I first got into this space, you have nothing to fear when you're telling the truth. Keep telling the truth. Mm. And there's a lot of reward even professionally on the other side for that. Um, and so, again, especially because I work on issues around race and equity, um, you don't have to tread around these issues. You don't have to be afraid of how folks will respond. Um, just be real about them. Tell the truth. Um, and the more I learned to do that in terms of being direct and explicit in talking about racism um, as opposed to race and really being open to, to challenging um, people, um, you know, and that that definitely has had rewards even professionally. Um, but remembering, you know, that that's my responsibility as a result of being in this space. So it can be things like I use critical race theory for my dissertation theory. People say, what are you doing using that in policy? Right. Um, There's a lot of other folks who do that, but they also look like me. Right. But for others who didn't look like me, what are you you know, why did, why are you bringing that into your work? Because I want to look at racism and I want to be explicit about it as an example. So it's not a perfect theory, but Mm -hmm. making choices along the way that um, just help you to just stay real and be direct, especially when it comes to issues of inequity is really critical. And then later on in my career, I saw the the fruit of that is that people who, when they're ready to talk about racism, want to talk to you Mm because you, you talk about it in a real way. So, um, yeah, if I could definitely go back, that was one of the major takeaways. Um, another would be um, is necessary, um, definitely necessary, and I'm sure folks outside of education can relate. But again, it's not just about uh, you know resting just because so you can have work life balance, but actually it makes the work better too. Um, and so I had to mm-hmm. learn that physically, emotionally, taking a step back 
having downtime. Um, I'm speaking to folks, right? You said the, the educational journey. Mm-hmm. It is so difficult because when you're in graduate school, you work all day and you get home and you do graduate school related things all night and all on the weekends. And next thing you know, you're working seven days a week, 24 seven. Mm. Mm. And so not only do you need that physically and mentally and spiritually, but you, um, your, your work is better when you have rested, <laughs> uh-huh. you're more productive. Um, and so, yes, if I could go back at the beginning of the journey, I would definitely try to hone in on that. But I've definitely learned through the process to, you know, the importance of making sure to rest. Um, and I would also say uh, the last thing would be humility um, is really important, especially if in education or fields where you hope to have an impact on particular communities. Um, if you're going to be working with people, let's say students or otherwise. Um, but it's really, really important to fight to stay humble because we're in spaces that, um, you know, award selfishness and arrogance. Mm-hmm. Um, especially academia. So for example, it might make sense on a project for you to work with three or four or five people. But if I was on the tenure track, I would lose points. The best thing for me is to be a single author on a project, Mm. right? There's nothing wrong with being a single author. All I'm saying is the way the reward system is set up, you're punished for being collaborative and you're rewarded for focusing on self. And that's what drives faculty to, to do things like take credit for things that grad students have produced and other you know dynamics that you'll hear about in academic spaces. There's a whole system that's influencing that. And so that means if you're in that space, and this is what I've learned along my journey, some, you have to be intentional about staying humble. What are you gonna do to stay humble? Who do you need to have around you to make sure you stay humble? Um, you need to be able to promote your work, but of course, then you're promoting yourself and just having balance and having real people around you who can check you <laughs> if needed, uh-huh. but also, um, just remembering why you got into the space in the first place and never to elevate your voice more than the issues that you care about, if that makes sense. So sometimes it makes better sense. I'll give you an example. Uh, sometimes I'll get a calls from reporters who want to talk to me about particular things at HBCUs. And sometimes it makes sense for me to comment. And sometimes it makes more sense for me to point them in the direction of someone else, especially mm. those working directly on those campuses. Um, now, if I'm thinking about my career in self you know, promotion, I would tackle every single opp- opportunity to, you know, give quotes. Mm-hmm. Um, so, for myself. <laughs> but once you open it up and have them talking to other people, there's been articles that I talked at length with a reporter and I don't show up in the article, you know, the person I sent them to does. But for the issue, that mm-hmm. was what was important and necessary. Mm-hmm. So it's just good to always try and stay focused on being humble and not get too caught up in the self-promotion that um, is a part of this work um, to the point that you lose sight of what's most important and impactful for the issues. Mm, you hit that on the head. Um, I work. I used to work in the academic space, and I never realized how, man, these these doctors and first 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 person that first like I, I forgot what it was first writer whatever mm-hmm. they were so tenacious about credit about about positioning whose name goes this where's the comma at it's just I've never seen nothing like it in the academic space and. The egos that I had to, to work around and work with. So it's lightning here. And the biggest thing I took from that, and I want you to kind of speak on real quick, 
because mm-hmm. I was like, I've never heard about it before. I mean, I never thought about it that way is being intentional about staying humble because I mean, you all hear it, stay humble, stay humble. But when you said that, like, so how are you intentionally staying humble? Yeah, it's a good question. Um, I think it's a few things. I think one is, you know, who is in your circle. So of course you have your family and all Mm -hmm. those folks who support you unconditionally, but I also have colleagues that I'm close to who are in the same spaces, who understand the context and what's going on that I feel comfortable. You know, we have the type of relationship where we can hold each other accountable. Mm -hmm. Um, and you know, bring up things to each other's attention if necessary. I think that that's one piece. I think having um, mentors that are examples of this, you know, I mentioned a mentor earlier and Sharon Friesbrit and others who, you know, I look up to who I feel like have done a great job of this. So make sure you're also seeing how that's modeled, you know, people, you can still be successful uh, without losing all of that, you know? Um, and so I think you just need to see it sometimes. And for me, I'm going to be honest, I made one of the biggest choices with that also in mind, among other factors, to not go right into academia after I finished my PhD. I felt that um, I wanted to be in a different type of space where I actually didn't have to fight against that reward system on the tenure track. So there's mm-hmm. plenty of people on the tenure track who are successful, who are not selfish, um, who are humble and everything. But for me personally, I just didn't necessarily have the energy and interest in fighting against that system. And so I went to a space where if it makes sense to have five people on a report, I'm not punished by that. Mm -hmm. The point was I was part of crafting an important, impactful report. Um, And so, again, if I was thinking about academia, like you said, you have to make sure, well, you know, who's first and, you know, maybe we shouldn't have all these people on here, even though they all worked on it. Um, and things like that. So I'm in a space where my reward system is not um, pushing against me. So that was intentional in some ways because I knew what kind of work I wanted to do. Um, So I'll give an example. You know, I'm working on a book right now um, and, you know, publishers said we're interested in this book, but I actually have a team of folks I've been working on this line of research with. And so I said to the publisher, you know, we'd like to co-author this book um, and the publisher was fine with it. But yeah, if I was in academia, that would have been a big <laughs> crisis. Yeah. You know, uh-huh. how do I do this? Do I just go off and write this book? They would probably understand and support me. Um, but I think it could be a better book, you know, based on the work that we were doing, if we all did it together. Um, and so again, I didn't have all of these other things working against me. So sometimes you have to think about, you know, what your pathway is, um, and where you want to do your work and making sure that you can be that person you want to be in that space. Man, that's, that's powerful. And it's just crazy. Cause when I was looking at your profile and I was like, I see the trajectory in academia and then I see SEF, which we're about to go jump into now. I'm like, so wow. So you just go from academia and then you're going to go over for that. So I'm interested to kind of hear that story and that transition because you just you're doing so wonderful in this interview. You just segued into the next oh, yeah. part of the show, which <laughs> nice. is present day. And I'm excited mm-hmm. to talking about the amazing work that you and the company and the organization that's been around and, and you could talk to it. And I, I definitely because I want you to educate our listeners on your job now and the organization that you work for that has been changing lives of people of color 
since 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 just after slavery. So please talk about SCF. What what made you join it and the work that y'all are doing there? Sure. So like you said, SEF was started just after the Civil War. We're approaching our 150th anniversary next year, um, essentially to advocate for you know educational opportunity on behalf of newly free slaves. And in a lot of ways, our mission hasn't changed much uh, to today. We still advocate for educational opportunities um, for low-income students and students of color across the South and beyond. And uh, we work on issues all the way across the educational pipeline from early education through higher education. And so I have the privilege to uh, direct the higher education uh, programs and initiatives. Um, we have a long history of working with historically black colleges and universities, um, ensuring their effectiveness and success, advocating on their behalf to policymakers and other um, accountability agencies like accreditation and, and such. Um, and so we're, we're really excited about all the work we're doing. Again, like I said, we have programs across the pipeline, um, some related to, you know, fellowship opportunities for college students interested in advocacy organizations to um, working on really pressing issues for advancing public ed, like uh, juvenile justice and other initiatives um, around K-12 governance, um, like opportunity school districts and, and figuring out um, what's best and what are the implications of these particular initiatives for low-income students and students of color in particular. Um, and I can provide more details um, about the, the higher education um, programs as well. But again, we, we typically use across these programs uh, strategies such as convenings, um, reports, and briefs, um, aiming to provide um, our partners with the tools that they need um, to advocate and serve these populations um, in the best way, best and most effective ways. Um, and so, yeah, what attracted me to SEF was just the opportunity to not only produce research, but to really get an opportunity to do something with it to not be limited or incentivized to really talk, just talk to my academic peers, but to get out there and talk to practitioners, talk to policymakers with the work that we were producing and actually be able to partner with campuses to implement different initiatives that would help them be successful. Um, and so coming out of my program and not being really clear on exactly what direction I wanted to go, it was a great opportunity to kind of um, get some experience doing many different things around policy and practice. Um, so I will uh, pause there, I guess, if you have um, any like follow up questions or anything you want to know more about in, in, as it pertains to our work. Yeah. So with your work, if you can kind of break it down to to your audience. So sure. on a day to day type of basis, because then I want to kind of transition to kind of your research space. But in a day to day, what is what is a what when you first started your first year, what were you ta what kind of stuff were you tasked to do? Good question. So I came in as a postdoc. And so I was my primary, primarily, I was responsible for producing um, research. Mm -hmm. um, as it pertains, so my first year, I, I continued to capitalize on what I had started with my dissertation work, which was looking at uh, state performance based funding policies. Mm -hmm. um, at minority serving institutions, HBCUs in particular. So what does that all mean? Basically, yeah, like, it's right in <laughs> like, English. What is that, like what, yeah, what does that mean? Why is it important? Exactly. So in higher education, just like in K-12, there's a system for determining 
what campuses get what money, right? Um, and so the way in which they used to d- decide this was much like K-12, which was based on your enrollment. For each student, you will get a particular dollar amount. Mm-hmm. So over time, um, there's been increasing pressure for educational systems to answer to the public and say, well, what are we getting for all this investment in education? Are you doing a good job? We don't think that you are. Maybe you need to demonstrate you're doing a good job, right? So we see that with things like No Child Left Behind Mm -hmm. in K-12, where teachers and schools are being held accountable for the outcomes of students in a financial um, and a substantial way. In higher education, you see the same thing. Again, they used to say, okay, you have this many students, you get this much money, you know, it's a dollar amount per student. Now they've shifted to say, Instead of that system, it'll be based on the outcomes, which is of all the students who enroll, what percentage actually graduate and other variables that they've determined to be really important. Um, And so if you have low graduation rates or low on other measures of success, you will get less money. So what does that all mean? There's a lot of research that demonstrates that there's correlations between low income students and graduation rates. So that means higher income students are more likely to graduate. Mm -hmm. So that means for campuses like HBCUs who serve a large proportion of low income students, they are poised to get less money under these systems than they even got before, not to mention the history of them getting underfunded. Mm -hmm. Um, So on top of that today, not only, you know, did you have a history of underfunding, but now we have a system in place where, institutions like community colleges even, um, but a lot of our open access uh, colleges and universities who do not have really high admission standards are not highly selective, mm-hmm. are in positions where they're going to continue to lose funding as a result of this new funding system. Um, and so again, at the time when I started this work, nobody was really talking about it from that perspective. Um, they just talked about it. Is this the way that we want to, you know, drive higher education? We talked Mm -hmm. about it from that perspective, but people who cared even about race and equity and HBCUs, unfortunately at the time, a lot of those folks didn't even know that these changes were taking place. And now we're at, we're at a point where more than half of the States use this type of system. But back then, you know, it was rapidly picking up. But when I would talk to folks about it, they're like, we didn't know this was happening. Um, even talk with campus leaders sometimes where I'm talking to them about what the metrics are in their state and how it works. And they were, they were not as aware about all of the details and how, what it meant for their institution until ultimately, you know, it's too late. Um, and so again, my, my goal with that work was to make those who really do care about access and opportunity for low income students and students of color to be aware of these policies, to be able to advocate, um, for metrics that would ensure that they're able to be successful, but not necessarily punish them for serving um, low-income students or students of color. Mm-hmm. Um, and then I wanted to talk with those folks who are behind, you know, designing these systems and advocating for them again to bring their attention to well, what does this all mean for access and opportunity and outcomes for low-income students and students of color, how can we revise these policies um, to make them more equitable? Mm. So at times, and thank you for that, thank you for that breakdown. So at times, do you kind of feel 
right now. So you're working in policy, working behind the scenes and seeing what the problems are, doing research, conducting, advocating, advocating, advocating. But I, do you do you at times feel kind of detached from the, the 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 real work? Like I mean, the actual community, actually face to face with the students that you're advocating for, or like how do you how do you have that balance? Because you're still you're still very very young, you're very educated, and you're you're fighting those policies, those those things that a lot of people aren't don't have access to see or even understand what's going on. But on the other end. Like that, that one-to-one the effect that's going on with the students, with the teacher, those were kind of relationships or the messaging that the actual people in the staff of those HBCUs are actually given to the students. And so you, you at times feel kind of dis- disconnected a little bit or. Yeah, it's a good question. I should say before I got into this work, I spent most of my like higher ed career doing mm-hmm. direct service with students and families and practitioners or folks okay. who work on campuses. So I used to, you know, work with pre-college programs, um, like Upper Bound and other programs like that. Um, I've, you know, done that type of work for a, a while and then working in student affairs as well on campuses. So I have those experiences. Mm-hmm. Um, but what drove me to the direction I'm in now was sometimes you just felt like your hands were tied because there were already policies written about so much how, red tape. exactly how we could serve students or not serve them based on policy or what resources we had based on policy. Um, so it actually drove me where I am. Um, and I'll say I used to work volunteer with a group who worked with youth who were incarcerated and we were doing college information with them again. So I'm giving them all the information in the world, but if my students had a drug charge at the time, they couldn't get financial aid. So to Mm. me, I thought I could do more for these students. I'm looking at in their face, not just putting on a workshop, but like actually advocating to change these policies so they can legit get out of here and get financial aid and move on with their lives. So Um, so that kind of drove me this direction, but to your point, you know, you kind of feel disconnected. That was one of the privileges of, of working at SCF is that we do a lot of direct work with those campuses. So, um, we are a foundation. We do provide financial support, um, to HBCUs and some Hispanic serving institutions to do particular initiatives. So that involves me in somewhat of a program officer role, being able to visit those campuses, talk with the students about how the initiatives are going, interview them, work with the faculty there who developed them. Um, so in some ways I still get some direct contact as well as the interns mm-hmm. that we work with in our office who are um, college students at various levels also keeps us, you know, somewhat connected as well. Mm, yeah, yeah, yeah. And um, I also want to ask you a question because there's so much, in my opinion, misinformation about the state of HBCUs today. Because, I mean, with the proliferation of blog sites and 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 not to say uncredible sources, but, I mean, there's just headlines that misconstrue stuff. I mean, you really don't know what information to trust. And in some instances, I see, man, HBCUs, I mean, they're, they're dying left and right. They're out of funding. It's going. What's going on? And in some instances where I look at even my alma mater, North Carolina A&T, admissions are at an all-time high. They're doing amazing. And then you look at all these other institutions that are doing an amazing jobs. So I know from your from your perspective, if you can speak on it, what is the kind of current state of HBCU? Yeah, well, and I want to preface with I'm speaking as an outsider. I'm a mm-hmm. supporter mm-hmm. and I'm an advocate, mm-hmm. um, but I'm not an alum. And I, you know, I've never worked full time with an HBCU. I've worked in partnership with them. Um, so, you know, I try to 
speak based on what these campuses are sharing with me and what the research tells us as well. Mm -hmm. And like you said, sometimes that runs counter to some of the things we see in the general media. And I tell the story about how I've spoken with a reporter before who called me up and said, hey, I'm doing a story in HBCUs. I want to write a story about how they're struggling. And I said, okay, how so? I'm thinking (laughs) maybe maybe something specific happened, right? A campus closing or such. I said, what? Well, what happened? You know, like, what's the story? And they're like, I just want to write a story about how they're struggling. Okay, why? So me and that reporter talked for like an hour. Mm -hmm. And I tried my very best to break down what is hopefully was the truth, but a balance between this, um, but reconstruct the narrative around why. So are some HBCUs in trouble in the way of, you know, financial stability, enrollment? Absolutely. There's a lot of non-HBCUs struggling as well, especially just small institutions, period, because you're so dependent on enrollment. If you don't have really large endowments and other sources of funding, drops in enrollment can create crises for your campus Mm -hmm. and especially over time. And so, again, you see small campuses in higher education struggling, period. But yes, many of those, you know, are HBCUs. But it's all about how you tell the story. So why would a campus be struggling? So you could talk about, you know, they have leadership that's dysfunctional. Um, among other things, maybe they're not relevant anymore. Or you could talk about what funding do they actually have? What funding have they ever had? Who do they serve and how do they serve them? And so once you start adding context to the situation, mm-hmm. again, it is a crisis to pay attention to because we care about the success and the future of these campuses. But it's also um, the result of many factors in higher mm. education. Some are campus-based and related. HBCUs are not perfect. However, there are many other factors like funding um, from the state, from the federal government, policy changes. Um, we saw you know, huge impact on HBCUs with changes to the Parent PLUS loan policy at the federal level oh, yeah. um, as an example, right? So then the next headline, you can say, oh, this campus is in trouble. They don't have any more money. And you can assume all sorts of things. Maybe they mismanage, et cetera. Maybe no one wants to go there. Or you could tell the story about how they lost a certain percentage of their enrollment as a result of this policy change, cutting off opportunities for the students who need it most, and nearly closing some institutions. Um, so I, my encouragement always when I talk to the media is just tell the whole story. You don't have to paint a pretty picture if one doesn't exist, if they really, you know, a crisis is happening. But tell the whole story around why and how. Um, And then, like you said, there's so many HBCUs in spite of these things. They're doing amazing things. Don't forget to, you know, uphold those stories. And the research supports all of this. So despite all of this, they outperform predominantly white institutions that have more resources um, in terms of producing um, degrees among black students, especially in critical areas like STEM and teacher education. Mm-hmm. Um, they're so they're responsible for most of the blacks who go on to um, post-secondary, I'm sorry, yeah, uh, and go on to graduate school and professional school and et cetera. So again, that's a very powerful story to tell and might encourage folks to wonder why aren't we pouring more money in rather than you know creating policies that takes money away. Um, so I'm all about telling the truth. Um, but again, the, the media, you know, likes to sensationalize things. And sometimes they don't tell the whole story because they're not talking to the right people. Mm-hmm. Um, and I think, again, there's enough research, quantitative and qualitative, to support uh, this notion that HBCUs are not only relevant, which, you know, 
I don't know why reporters keep asking that question, but, <laughs> but, <laughs> um, but not just relevant, but the fact that they are carrying beyond their load when it comes to um, producing success for students of color. And that's actually how I got in that line of work, because, of course, I went to predominantly white. Yeah, that's what I was about to ask. Like, I mean, because you, you of course, you're African-American, but you you you're not even in that space. So you got into that yeah. space because of. Yes. So I'm from Michigan. So there are not HBCUs in Michigan. However, <laughs> I went on black college tour when I was in high school. The class. I, yes. And so I loved um, Hampton and I applied and I got in. But unfortunately, I just couldn't afford it, even with the, the money they were able to offer. So I would have loved to attend it, but I it couldn't make it happen. Um, however, based on you know the experiences I had in, at predominantly white institutions, um, you know, it encouraged me to wonder about institutions that actually wanted us there um, and what that experience might be like. Um, and two, when I started getting into higher ed research, you can't get around it if you're focused on students of color. Mm -hmm. um, so I was doing some work um, on black students in STEM with a research team at University of Maryland. And again, we're in, we're interviewing, you know, the best of the brightest, you know, black physicists and they're all HBCU alum. There's mm. just no way around it, you know? And so, again, we weren't at an HBCU alum meeting. We're talking about just the, <laughs> the top physicists in the country. That's uh -huh. just where, who produces them when you're mm -hmm. talking about Black folks. And so I kept being drawn back into those campuses. Um, and again, I felt like when I finished, I wanted to use the skills and knowledge I was able to gain studying higher education and policy to advocate for some institutions for a while that um, wanted, wanted students of color there. I worked so hard to help PWIs around issues of race and equity, um, which is important work. But I just wanted to spend some energy in a different way on institutions that wanted us. But again, we're facing all sorts of challenges um, for many reasons. And I, I wanted to, to try and you know help uh, generate greater support for them and make people more aware of what I was learning from the research about their success despite any challenges they have faced. Mm. Yeah, that's a that's a great answer. And thank you. Thank you for sharing mm -hmm. that. Thank you for sharing that. So I do have mm -hmm. one question and you can put on your your Department of Education hat for a second. And I know since your research background and really you don't just say stuff off the cuff. So you can you can answer this question or you can parlay it. <laughs> but okay. if you were tasked to lead the United States Department of Education, what would be the first thing you would do in regards to minorities? Oh, just one thing. <laughs> like, well, I would, um, one, one of the most important things is I would try to reframe, restructure all of these Band-Aid programs um, mm -hmm. and try and figure out how to um, I guess redirect them to be more focused on long-term institutional change. So let me explain what I mean. So I had the privilege of working for programs like Upper Bound and others, and I benefited as a first-generation college student absolutely mm -hmm. from college yeah. prep programs. That was another you know thing I forgot to say in the beginning that had a huge impact. Every Saturday you go and you hear uh, from college students that look like you about you can go to college and here's how, right? So those programs totally matter for the people who participate. Now, that being said, again, so 
30, 40 years later, and I love TRIO, I'm a TRIO alum, you know, I'm a McNair student, everything, you know, I'm here because of programs like that. But I don't know that those are the best long-term solutions. So again, in our building, when I worked for, with Upper Bound in Detroit, we served 30 students that year out of, you know, there's 2000 students in the building though. So what are we doing long-term mm. to work strategically with whether it be guidance counselors, teachers, whatever we needed to do to transform that institution. So it's to the point where when you report back to the Department of Ed, you're just saying, we serve this many students, this is how many applied for college, this is how many went, you know, which all matters, but what about those other students? Um, and so again, we have a lot of Band-Aid programs that I think should be there until we have figured this thing out, if that makes sense. So I'm not advocating to get rid of those programs because mm -hmm. they're, they're needed, absolutely. So we need to support them. But I think we also need to focus our attention on like, what are our long-term strategies to dismantle um, the, the structural inequality at the, at the institutional level, not just, um, you know, again, I don't know a better word than Band-Aid, but just in the short term. So it's a great, those are great short-term solutions um, and we should keep supporting them till we get it right, you mm -hmm. know, but I don't see enough effort there to actually help transform those things. Um, mm -hmm. And not to say it's the responsibility of those programs, but just from the department in terms of how they structure support. Um, again, even with like Race to the Top and some of these other initiatives, the idea is still singularly focused on like one institution. I think we have to just, or what a small set of institutions, even at the K-12 level. And again, how can we think about long-term change differently? Mm -hmm. um, so that would be one thing. Um, another might be uh, paying more attention when it comes to higher ed to institutional resources. So there's this dynamic where um, we think that we have to advocate for students. And so we're uh, almost oppositional to campuses, right? Um, so yes, we give financial aid directly to students to empower them to make choices and then assume that institutions, you know, will do right by students. Oh, okay. I get you now. I get Almost, you now. I get you yeah. Now. As a, as a market system, what I would hope to see is trying to figure out how to be more supportive of institutions as well. Um, so for example, if you have places like not all HBCUs, but especially some who have very low endowments, mm -hmm. um, making sure that we take factors like that into consideration. So even I'd say, for example, within the category of minority serving institutions, there's different set asides for different federal programs through the Department of Ed. But HBCUs sometimes are put in a position where they're competing with research one institutions who just happen to enroll a certain percentage of either Latino or Asian or Native American students. And it doesn't have to be an HBCU versus everyone else conversation. It could even be within HSIs. There are some that have an abundance of resources and some that have very little. And so, again, because... I don't think the framing or the framework that we typically work with is to think about institutions and what their resources are. We just think about low-income students or students of colors kind of existing by themselves as the oppressed. And then we have, you know, we have to advocate on their behalf to these institutions. I would hope to see some sort of reframing, whether it be like tearing off so that we're not putting institutions in position where they're competing with one another 
um, when they have such different levels of institutional resources. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and so that would be something I would hope to see as well. And then the last thing I would say is, um, you know, that whole, the whole idea of rating how well uh, colleges and universities um, are performing that I discussed earlier. You know, you see it in the Department of Ed with the college rating system, which isn't inherently bad. But what I would hope to see in the future are two things. One would be, how do we figure out how to include issues of race and racism into that system and issues of social mobility? So, for example, um, if we're going to punish campuses whose graduation rates aren't high, Shouldn't we also note if they have, you know, extremely high incidence of campus racism um, mm-hmm. on campus as well? Uh, shouldn't we address whether or not they serve to help um, students, you know, become um, socially mobile or be able to move up classes as a result? So Washington Monthly is a publication that puts out their own like rating system of colleges. And you see campuses like Howard rise to the top because they take low-income students, they graduate them, and they go on to be so successful. So there's something special they're doing there. And unfortunately, with the the systems that we're using now, we end up punishing campuses like that because, again, the types of students they're enrolling, the U.S. News and World Report, they reward students our campuses for being really selective and excluding people. So we have to reframe how we define success to make sure that we are upholding campuses that are um, creating healthy racial climates for students, as well as those who are helping support the success of low-income students. And I think the college rating system that exists is a decent start, but I think there's definitely some more work to do around metrics in the future. I know it's based on the data they have, but that would be ideal if we could figure out how to incorporate additional or new data that we should um, be collecting as well. So those are my three. I hope it wasn't too academic. It was very academic, but it's necessary because it painted a picture of the work that needs to be done. Like, right. you just, like, cause like, I, I love how at the beginning you just said, well, so much focus is on K through 12, but we just make it like, well, you go to college or especially if you get a master's degree, then, oh, you're good now. Everything's good. It's just, mm-hmm. okay. It just, and it's not that flowy. And honestly, if you don't get the, the postgraduate, the higher education down right and cemented, then that hurts the K through 12. It's a circular thing. So if you do not have an amazing pipeline of policies, of leaders, of principals, of institutions, then that inherently puts a cap on the, the longevity and the resources and the, the, the greatness of the K through 12. So um, I'm, this, 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 this interview has definitely educated me on just just a lot of different stuff. So nah, this is definitely necessary. And and you're thorough <laughs> about what you're doing. I love it. I love it. I love it. Oh good. So the we're transitioning to one of the one of the final rounds of the future. So um question, what's next for um SCF and I, and that's the Southern Education Foundation. I I I've been using the acronym, but I never said what it stands for. But for 2016, I mean, because I know y'all doing a lot of great work, but what do you believe is the, the next steps for the organization this year and beyond? Yeah, absolutely. So this year we're, you know, gearing up for our 150th anniversary next year. Wow. Um, yeah, we want to definitely tell a compelling story about the impact we've been able to have over time on you know, success of HBCUs and the production of Black teachers, among other issues. Um 
in the meantime, you know, in terms of the current work that we're doing, um, we'll continue advocating for, you know, for our K-12 work, um, you know, what SEF calls, you know, the new majority, which is a report that was released um, from us, a series around uh, the uh, using um, Department of Education data that demonstrates that the new uh, majority of public school children are um, low income. And so just kind of, again, we use a lot of language around minority and such, but just remembering that these are actually the majority. And so making sure that our institutions are set up to support those students and remembering at the same time, we've lost a lot of funding for public education in K-12 and higher ed um, mm -hmm. over this same time and kind of making sure that we continue to advocate for greater support um, of education. And so and, and more practically speaking, in our higher education work, um, we'll continue trying to work to address issues of developmental education in higher education, which um, other people might know as remediation or the idea that students get to college and they think they're going to be able to enroll in college courses, but they can't. They have to first take additional uh, remedial education courses, um, which is, you know, a, a K-12 and a higher ed issue uh, together and figuring out how to ensure those students are successful using new models. So we'll continue to try and expand that work that we've started in that area. Um, and we want to continue to bring greater attention to the crisis that is public support for um, education um, in higher ed and especially at HBCUs, whether it's around performance funding or otherwise. Um, but, you know, a greater emphasis on, on funding and what's needed. Um, and continue to try and develop strategies to support college students as they advocate around issues of higher education costs and race and racism. I think we've seen, you know, over the last year, the power of the, the student voice in um, shifting higher education's attention and focus on these issues. And so we'll be talking through strategies to try and ensure the support um, of these uh, students and the strategies that they're proposing, a lot of which there's a lot of research support for, for why. And so a lot of the, you know, for example, a lot of the student advocates have, you know, protested and demanded that their campuses hire more faculty of color and among other things. Um, and there's a lot of research that suggests, you know, why that would be a really good thing for the students of color and white students at those campuses. Mm -hmm. um, and so we'd like to play that role because we have so much experience talking with practitioners. We would like to provide um, you know, create opportunities for there to be more of an exchange and encourage campuses not to merely ignore these students, but to embrace a lot of the, the recommendations that they're making. Um, and so we'll be, you know, in the process of developing work around that um, as well. We'll continue to use our, our main strategies, which are convening, you know, partners together to exchange ideas and talk about these issues, producing reports that provide research that can be used um, to address these issues. And our toolkits that we provide to practitioners to try and um, improve their their strategies. And so, for example, um, we released a toolkit last year around financial management strategies with Gerald Hector as an author. He's an HBCU alum and um, been a chief financial officer at uh, higher education institutions. Again, mm -hmm. so we don't just advocate, you know, give HBCUs more money, um, which we do, but also we work with HBCUs around their financial management and strategies um, as well. And so we do a lot of that kind of practical work um, and we'll definitely be continuing to do that. 
man, that's a goodness gracious. Y'all got a lot of y'all plate. Yes. <laughs> like that's, a, that's, that's strategy on strategy on strategy, which is all needed. And I'm just glad that we have people like yourself and there's others that are going to be coming on the show that just spending their livelihood and their life advocating for this work because um, I could spend um, all day um, hashtagging on Twitter or commenting on the state of HBCUs and whatnot and, and supporting financially, which is important for somebody in my, in my, in my landscape, but we definitely need people to pull on that armor, put on that shield to really do the grunt work of having these meetings, having these conversations, because I'm an action person. I love action, but Mm -hmm. you have to have those conversations to even make people aware of certain issues before you can even get to it. So my last question in in, in the vein of this is with research, how do you kind of weigh engage the impact of your research and in, in the stuff that you do because a lot of times you might not see it in 10 20 30 years if not even your lifetime to be honest so i mean personally how do you really gauge the impact of what you do wow <laughs> that's a good question um for me i guess around the the policy work in particular um one of the, I guess the short term, right? Can't see out 30 years, but yeah. in the short term, some of the impact is, has have conversations changed? So I, I gave an, an example of the reporter um, that I spoke with. So when that story came out, it was very different. The story about our HBC, how they're struggling. It became a story much more focused on, you know, in some ways how higher education failed HBCUs and didn't provide them the support necessary, as well as talking about their current state of affairs. And so in some ways I see that as impact because I talked with that reporter about data. I didn't mm-hmm. you know, give them a, a, a speech. Um, a, again, in some ways I'm a, like, I'm an advocate, you know, I'm not, I'm not an alum. I don't actually have as many personal stories besides mm-hmm. those I partner with, but I had data. And so I use research in that way and they can't argue that you know, in terms of the HBCU success, and there was a different story written. So that felt very impactful in some ways because we know how powerful and influential the media is, especially on policymakers. And so um, there's short-term impacts like that. But again, our um, I would say that minority-serving institutions, in particular HBCUs, are more aware of things like performance-based funding now, in part because of a lot of the work I've been able to do and then partners who've been supportive of getting that work out there to them. Um, places like uh, HBC Digest or HBC Nation Radio or Center for Minority Serving Institutions, others who've published interviews, op-eds, all aimed at, you know, making that constitu- constituency more aware of that issue. So I would say in some ways it's impactful there because now five years ago when I would talk to people, you know, working with HBCUs, about you know performance funding, I had to explain what it was. Now mm. people are telling me, oh yeah, we're doing X, Y, and Z in response to performance funding, or this is what I think about it. I don't have to prompt them per se. Like they're very much aware and have strategies around it. And so I would say that that's like an evidence of some impact um, on that conversation. Um, I would say 
where I hope to do more work is on the other side, which is impacting those policies in the first place. Um, I've been invited to conversations with those who work on that particular issue as an example, um, as they're rethinking how do we revise these policies for the future. Um, and I'm there and I'm talking about HBCs, I'm talking about race and racism. And, you know, again, so I would feel like in the short term, that's definitely impact. Um, but in the long term, I would hope to look back and say, um, you know, I was a part of a body of work that helped uh, shift more resources um, to these campuses so that they're able to provide more opportunities um, to students. Mm. Fantastic answer. You just put a you always put a button on every one of these questions. Oh, yeah. So it's like I don't I, I love it. I love it. Cause a lot of times when I interview people, it's like a, a, a birthday present that have wrapped and I just got to <laughs> bring my other wrap and wrap it, put all the tape in. You just always put a pretty button right there. So now nah, amazing answer. Amazing answer. And we're going to transition to our last round, our most exciting round. I call it the culture change round, where we ask a series of five questions and receive rapid fire answers. Are you ready? Sure. Okay. <laughs> what is the best piece of advice that you ever received? Um, piece of advice I've ever received. I'm not answering this very fast, am I? No, you're fine. Um, you're fine. <laughs> um, best piece of advice I've ever received. Take weekends off. Oh, so, whoa, whoa, whoa. Time out. You're in academia. You don't take weekends off. When did you start up? When did you, when, how long have you been utilizing that? Since the third year of my PhD program. So you go, you waited to the third year of your PhD yeah. program to do that. Yep. <laughs> yes yes it was one of the best things i've ever done mm, great. yeah great. i i do not work on weekends mm, i like that yes what is one of your personal habits that you can attribute to your success mm, personal habits uh organization very organized i've been carrying a, a daily and weekly planner since i was 11 <laughs> man you always ahead of the game goodness <laughs> yeah. Yeah, maybe like too much. So I've learned to be more flexible, but definitely <laughs> was always with the, the to do list. No, nah, I feel it. I feel it. <laughs> what is your favorite book and why? <sighs> OK. I will have to say the autobiography of Malcolm X. And the, and the reason I say that is I read that book faster than I've ever read a book before. Um, I couldn't put it down. And what I liked most ab about it is not only was he bold, but he was not afraid to tran uh, transform. And um, yeah, being bold and humble doesn't have to necessarily be mutually exclusive. And you can be strong, but you and your um, thoughts and confident and precise, but you do not necessarily have to be unwilling to change once presented with new information and new ideas. And I think that's a part of being fearless is. Um, and so I appreciate. Yeah, I appreciated that um, about his life. Man, um, that, that book was goodness. Great. It was just so raw. Like, mm -hmm. Man, if, if auto of all autobiographies were like that, just so raw and not like ah. Mm-hmm. What inspires you the most and keeps you motivated? 
I definitely say um, just my belief in God and that I do not have to do this on my own and I'm not doing it on my own. And so um, in terms of keeping me motivated, you mentioned it's a lot of stuff and it could be, <laughs> uh, you know, you can do a lot of things with a PhD, you know, and so sometimes you can feel like, oh man, you know, you're on this uphill battle working on these issues. But I'm remembering, you know, that I'm a piece of a puzzle and that I'm using the gifts and the resources that God gave me for good. And, um, and yeah, and I'm not out here on my own doing this. There's many others um, that he's also using to to work on these same things. And um, yeah, so just stay in the course. But that helps you to not feel just overwhelmed and succumb by all these these issues. Mm. If you were the president of the United States, what is the first thing you would do? Oh, boy. Um, <laughs> I honestly, this might be a generic answer, but I would make education, especially higher education, more of a priority. Um, and because it impacts so many of the other key areas like jobs, healthcare, all the things that we know are our key priorities. Um, but unfortunately, I feel like we've seen across administrations, you know, uh, Republican, Democrat, regardless, um, over the last decade or so, still a lot of um, not necessarily emphasis on how do we make these investing in these systems. Mm -hmm. There's an emphasis on accountability, but that's not always the same thing. So are we investing? Um, and so I would try and focus my attention on how to do that. I don't think the president does that by himself obviously. Um, and there's so much happening at the state level because, you know, traditionally education is a state issue, but trying to prioritize an emphasis on investing in education. I think there are some strides being made even by throwing out the idea of free college um, forces attention and debate. And, and that's what we like to see, but I try to do more of that to figure out what can be done to make sure that we pro um, prioritize educational opportunity um, over other things. Because honestly, if we look at other things like our military budget, we can't afford it. We can afford free college. We can afford more than that. Um, but again, it's just where where's our emphasis. So, mm, damn. Well, that's a that's a wonderful answer. And our last question of the interview is: If you could change one thing about society, most specifically the African American culture. What would it be and why? Goodness, you know, these easy questions, right? <laughs> <laughs> um, I would say confidence. And I say that because in, I had the privilege of living, you know, in D.C. area and other areas where you come across other black folks from other parts of the world. And that was one of the biggest differences, if there were many, you know, in terms of like our situation has been such we don't have time, you know, for a less, another yeah. discussion on that. But I will say it has affected and I'm speaking even personally, you know, as the descendants of slaves in this country, our psyche to the point where um, we just lack confidence sometimes um, and. Uh, again, so, you know, I know that, you know, those living outside of this context have had, you know, different experiences. So I'm not trying to get into a, you know, native born versus immigrant debate or anything, but I will say that if I could just change that for our people, um, I absolutely would believing that 
you know, you are smart, you're intelligent, you're not all these lies that, you know, media tells you, what teachers tell you, you are more um, than that. Uh, I would love to tell myself that. I had a teacher who literally said it was a sub too, you know, I don't know why you guys are trying so hard. Our he said class. it was a sub too. Right. You know, but just <laughs> as if they could weigh in, you know, they weren't even a, yeah, whatever. Anyway, but you know, they said, you know, I don't know why you all are trying so hard. Like when you apply to colleges, they know what kind of school this is, you know, like things like that, that, you know, I still remember that moment, you know, as a, even though I have a PhD now, like I wish I could go and, um, and talk to myself then to, you know, let the, that person is just a liar, you know, like you could, you're going to get this PhD, you can get whatever degree you want to get. Um, and, that's one of the biggest issues um, I wish I could address for our communities. I don't have all the answers about how to do that and how to help counter some of the, so many of the negative messages. But um, yeah, confidence is just such a, a big piece that, you know, more than capable to do whatever we want to do or more. Um, and that we have these abilities and these skills um, and not to be discouraged by, um, unfortunately, a lot of the struggles that we have to go through. Um, and just realizing how smart and capable um, those struggles have made us uh, to be successful. So, hey man, that was a that was a fantastic answer and a fantastic end to a fantastic interview. Like I really. Man, I've learned a lot. I got my mind racing on a lot of different issues and stuff like that. So uh, before we go, please share with our audience where we can find information more about SEF, about the great work they do, about yourself, where, where can we find you online, and all that great information. Sure. So the Southern Education Foundation can be found at southerneducation.org. That's our website. We're also on Twitter. Um, I'm also on Twitter at Tiffany Jones, Ph.D., um, so, you know, please do stay in touch, follow us, and you can find all of our information about all of our work there. Sign up to receive our newsletter as well. Mm, well, yeah, all that information will be on the show notes. And from the bottom of my heart, from the from Minority Trailblazers Nation's heart, we'd like to thank you for giving us your time and being on the show. Of course, of course. Thank you again for the invitation. I appreciate it. Man, another episode in the books. An hour plus. Thank y'all so much for holding it down and staying with me. Man, a lot of jewels, nuggets were dropped in this episode. I pray that y'all are able to get at least one thing. One thing that you can apply to your everyday life in this episode. Also, thank you, Southern Education Foundation, for helping out with the show, getting the word out, and, and, and allowing Dr. Tiffany Jones to share her advice, share her knowledge, and share her time. And, yo, thank you so much for your support in this podcast. Remember, for more information on my book, you can check it out at greggyhill.com backslash book. She already let her know where to find Southern education foundation online as well as her social media information and yo y'all have an amazing and phenomenal week thank you for tuning in and remember to do one thing what is that one thing mr hill that one thing is remember to change the freaking culture good night <laughs>